If you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As we start a new book this morning, as I alluded to in the opening, we have a few points to establish. Even though that the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is a little different style, it is still an epistle. It is, that's a fancy word for a letter. And as we look at this letter this morning, we want to look at its authorship, its audience, the time frame that it was written, and the central theme of this letter. None of the early writers who quote Hebrews, both either biblically or in contemporary writings of that time outside of the Bible, mention the author of Hebrews. Nowhere in any historical documents is the the author of the book of Hebrews noted. Nor does anything in the book of Hebrews itself help us to nail down who the author is. The author was obviously a teacher, and from the text we can see was a second-generation Christian, spiritually a second-generation Christian. In chapter 2, verse 3, the writer says, How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us, speaking of the author themselves, by those who heard. So it was secondhand, apparently, to this author, is what what we can perceive from that. The style of Hebrews is like any other New Testament gospel or letter. Consequently, we can do nothing more than speculate as to who the author was. We can't nail it down. Though many suggestions have been made, I want to mention just a few this morning. Historically, many, several people had mentioned Barnabas as a potential author. Martin Luther suggested that Apollos was the author. There's a gentleman by the name of Adolf Harnack, a German theologian around the turn of the 20th century, who surmised that Priscilla could have written the epistle. Many do accept Paul as the author, but both the language And the way the writer forms their thoughts are not like those of Paul in his other epistles. The Greek is very polished. Like you would see uh, the the English language today without the contractions, without just the, the thought of polish. It's very precise, very flowing, very poetic in some ways, very polished. Paul's throughout his writing was what they would describe as rugged. 
kind of direct and to the point, less polish, I guess you would say. The writer uses a lot of rabbinical symbolism, which Paul uses in none of his other letters. John Calvin and Martin Luther did not believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know. But there's, in the end, there's one thing that we can be sure about. We have no definite evidence of who authored the letter of Hebrews. God only knows the truth. But the human author is not the important point. But the fact that Hebrews is part of God's inspired word, the fact that Hebrews is part of the canon, which is the Bible that we hold as God's word today, that's the important part. Well, with no conclusion on who wrote this letter, next we look at the audience that it was written to. It is a letter to the Hebrews, as noted in its title. These were most likely Christian Jews. But this, too, is debated. But I personally believe that there is ample evidence for this conclusion. The tone of the book itself assumes that the readers were Christians. It is obviously written to people who have a significant amount of knowledge of the Old Testament and of the sacrificial laws. There were a lot of assumptions made by this author that they knew all about the sacrificial laws and all of the edicts of the law under the Old Testament. This itself indicates that the book must have been intended for a Jewish community that had converted to Christianity. But we are still, that's a kind of a general audience, but we are still left with many questions as to the original audience. One thing's for sure, we are now part of that audience. This text was meant by God for us. But next, when was it written? Just to get some cultural context. This book of Hebrews was most likely written prior to the year of A.D. 70. And prior to the destruction of the Jewish temple. Because the book mentions the sacrificial system in Jerusalem as if it were still in place. The author also mentions Timothy who we know was a friend of Paul's, which would also put the book in that same time frame. Finally, what we want to establish this morning as we start our study of this book is the theme, the general theme of the book. Hebrews instructs all Christians on how to read the Old Testament in the perspective of Christ. It is a beautiful bridge from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Looking back, not dismissing the Old Testament, but bringing it forward into the new and seeing all of the fulfillments. Just as the feasts, the biblical feasts still do today, the book of Hebrews is helping with that bridge also to connect the Bible as a whole. Genesis through Revelation is a revelation of Christ, is the story of Christ. And as we walk through Hebrews, we're going to see that in more and more detail. It reveals the superiority of the Christian faith relative to all other so-called faiths in the world. It reveals the steadiness, the trueness, 
the reality that the Christian faith is the faith. This thought is expressed in this book by the use of the word better, which in one translation occurs 13 times in the chapters of this book. Hebrews tells us that the law was good, but that grace under Christ is better. And that the glory that is coming is going to be the best. Hebrews presents that which is better. The word perfect in various forms appears 15 times in the letter. It is a book that challenges us. The words let us occurs 13 times. Let us do this. Let us do that. And let occurs five times, meaning, as I said, let's do this. Do these things. Two verses in the book convey to us this better way. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, and high priest of our confession. We are to consider him. Then in chapter 12, chapter 3, or chapter 12, verse 3, we read the challenge. Again, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What we are going to do as we study the epistle to the Hebrews, we are going to consider him, the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what the author, inspired by God, challenges us to do and teaches us to do. That is the most important thing that any Christian can do. As we look at these opening verses this morning, we're going to look at the then, the now, and the how. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. We praise you for this text. We praise you for this truth. We praise you for the supremacy of Christ. Lord, may your spirit guide us as we study these words, as we begin our study of this letter, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Dr. William Pettinger writes, From Adam to Moses, through 2,500 years, and from Moses to Malachi, through 1,100 years, the prophets were speaking for God to men. But at the end of the 3,600 years, their revelation of God was only partial. After 3,600 years, the revelation was only partial. Then after a silence of 400 years, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. And in that Son, the revelation of God is perfect. I have to make my point this morning again about lineal time. Lineal time is for our sake. Time does not restrict God. God is outside of lineal time. Time is for us. 
God revealed himself for 3,600 of our years. And then he was silent for 400 years. And now we've had the fullness of the revelation for over 2,000 years. That is a lot of generations. When we're tempted to make it all about us, we need to hit the reset button in our minds and in our hearts. We get to live with the revelation. What about those people who lived during the 400 years? Silence, nothing, no prophets, no Holy Spirit, nothing. The author divides history into two segments, before Christ and after Christ. He calls the time before Christ long ago. During that time, as I have already alluded to, God used prophets to reveal his message to the people. The original Jewish readers of this letter would have known that God had spoken, in fact, in many times, at many times, and in many ways to their ancestors through the Old Testament times. God had spoken to Isaiah in visions, to Jacob in a dream, and to Abraham and Moses personally. They didn't get to see him, but he spoke to them. He had taught Jeremiah through object lessons. You can read about that one in Jeremiah chapter 13. He also talked to people through the prophet Hosea's marriage. Elsewhere in the historical account, God had revealed his direction to the people through a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. That was then. Those revelations all pointing to Christ, that was then. All of these things in anticipation, yet the fullness had not come. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The same God who spoke through the prophets had now spoken through his Son, through Christ. Jesus completed and fulfilled the message that was originally brought by the prophets and forefathers. That phrase, whom he appointed the heir of all things, refers to Jesus as an heir, as a recipient of all things, who will take his position as ruler of the new kingdom, referring to Christ, to Christ as that heir. Referring to him as that heir gives him the highest position of honor. This passage alludes to Psalms 2, verse 8. This psalmist writes, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus worked with God to create the world. He was there at the beginning of the world we live in. Through his Son, God made the universe and everything in it. Psalms 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Again, Jesus was there at the beginning of time. When all of this terrain, all of this world was created, Jesus was there. All of this creation testifies to the existence of God and the existence of Jesus. Jesus is with us now, and he will be there at the end of time as the heir of all things. And as a result of his position, as a result of him being the heir of all things, Romans chapter 8, verse 16, starting in verse 16, Paul writes, The, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, we too are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's the now and the future. Now, let's look at the how. How does this come to pass? Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Under Jesus' human appearance, as a carpenter turned preacher, was God's very own glory. Jesus doesn't just reflect God. He is God. Everything about Jesus represents God exactly. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. John chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was then. Jesus is now. That is the message of Hebrews. No one has ever seen God. The only God. Who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The prophets could only tell God's people what they saw and heard. Jesus is God himself. His message is firsthand. As he walked the earth, his message was firsthand. He was God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ not only created the universe, he also sustains it. Christ spoke the world into existence. Not just a tiny piece, not just one element. Christ spoke the world as we know it into existence. And he supports it with that very same word. Christ guides the world toward God's appointed future. The time when he will receive it as his inheritance. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 16, and we're going to read through verse 20. Paul again writes, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible. Or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All of the fullness of God, the creator of the universe, was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is all packed These words from Colossians are all packed in that one little statement back in Hebrews after making purification for sins. The writer of Hebrews almost states that as a matter of factly. But do we understand the weight of that statement after making purification for sins? The creator of the universe stepped down out of heaven And by his life, death, and resurrection made a way for us to be reconciled to him for eternity. To live with him forever. That is what we celebrated here last Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. God made that way. And that's what we'll be learning to walk in as we study the letter to the Hebrews. In him alone and the power of his word, we find the central principle of our lives. Jesus supernaturally reigns over all other power in the universe. Nothing or no one else is more powerful than Jesus. Nothing is outside of his control. He has this power, not because He just sitting at the right hand of his father commanded it to be so from his lofty throne just looked down and said, so be it. That's not how he has this power. But because in the ultimate act of humility, he gave his own life. Jesus made a way not out of some distant resource. Jesus made a way by giving his life. And after he died and rose again, he then returned to heaven and sat down at the right hand of his father. Only then. Psalms 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus' death had accomplished what all of the animal sacrifices could never do. It cleansed people from the stain of sin. No sacrifice for sin could be greater than the sacrifice offered by the creator of the universe. 
His death on the cross, Jesus cleansed the world from the power of sin and took the penalty for our sins. By dying in our place, no other penalty needs to be paid. Jesus made the way. We can be completely clean, cleansed of our sins because of what Jesus has done. The prophets foretold it. Christ fulfilled it. And we live in the reality of it. It's all about Jesus. And when we fail to make it all about Jesus, that's when we find ourselves in despair. That's when we find ourselves in anxiety. That's when we find ourselves hopeless. Because it is all about Jesus. That is a fact. But when we resist that fact, when we live outside of the reality of that fact, that's when our world gets turned upside down. So what does this mean? It means that when I open my eyes in the morning and I'm still blind, it's all about Jesus. When someone gets a cancer diagnosis, it's all about Jesus. When we're in a car accident, it's all about Jesus. When someone mistreats us, it's all about Jesus. When we're at odds with our spouse, it's all about Jesus. When our kids are rebelling, it's all about Jesus. When we get the great job, it's all about Jesus. When our savings account is growing, it's all about Jesus. When we get the girl, when we get the guy, it's all about Jesus. When our kids excel at school, it's all about Jesus. It has to be all about Jesus in our hearts. It is all about Jesus. But if we don't live in that reality, it is not going to go well for us. When we make it all about Jesus, we will be overcomers. Nothing we can suffer. No injustice. No physical trial. No blessing we receive compares to what Jesus suffered on our behalf. Not because of anything he had done. Because if he had done anything, he would not have been a worthy sacrifice. But because he was the perfect sacrifice. And because he was willing to step down from the right hand of his father and be that final sacrifice. That's why it's all about Jesus. At the cross, he took it all. At the cross, he took our sins. He took our wretchedness. He took our wickedness. He took it all to the cross and died for us. As we journey through the book of Hebrews, as we study the supremacy of Christ, I exhort each of us to walk in the reality that it is all about Jesus. And when we find ourselves 
not making it about Jesus. So who are we making it about when we're not making it about Jesus? We're making it about us. And we make it about us. We are pushing the supremacy of Christ. We're pushing the reality of what Christ did for us aside. And we are walking in turmoil. We are walking in dangerous, dangerous territory. I want to encourage you this morning. If you are not making it all about Jesus. To drive that stake. To put up that Ebenezer this morning. That from this point forward, your focus, your desire is to make it all about Jesus. It's been a while since I've done this, so I forget the past pattern, but I'll just make a new one this morning. If you want to come forward and you want somebody to pray for you, come to my left, your right. Someone will join you up here at the altar to pray. The altar is open. It's always open. But if you want someone to pray with you, come and kneel here. If you want to just pray between you and God, come to my right, your left. Spend some time with God. Opening your hearts. Opening your mind to the supremacy of Christ. Take inventory of your heart and where you are not making it all about Jesus. Lay it at the altar. Lay it at the foot of the cross. Where Christ's blood ran red. Where he provided the ultimate sacrifice. Where he became what the prophets had spoken of for all of those years. For 3,600 years, he fulfilled it. And we have been walking in the fullness of that revelation for the last 2,000 years. Anticipating the ultimate culmination of the prophets and his life, death, and resurrection. And that is eternity with him. Encourage you this morning in obedience. Make it all about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. We praise you for your provision. We praise you for your love. We praise you for your care for us, God. Lord, we praise you that it is all about Jesus. Because, God, if it was all about us, if it was even a little bit about us, it would all fall apart. But God, it is all about Jesus. It is all about him stepping down from your right hand. Becoming that sacrifice. Being willing to be that sacrifice. And for you to resurrect him from the dead in victory over sin and over death. God, may we walk in the reality of that truth this morning, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.